The biggest potential water disaster in the United States. The New Yorker. The 11th of May 2022. The Sacramento is California's largest river. It arises near the lower slopes of Mount Shasta, in the northernmost part of the state, and runs some 400 miles south, draining the upper corridor of the Central Valley, bending through downtown Sacramento, and, eventually, reaching the Pacific Ocean, by way of the San Francisco Bay and the Golden Gate Bridge. Eric Vink, the executive director of the Delta Protection Commission, a state conservation agency, described the Sacramento to me as California's first superhighway. By the 1850s, daily steamboats ferried passengers between San Francisco and Sacramento in as little as six hours. Travelers now mostly use I-80 to cover the same 90 miles, and ocean-going ships bound for the port of West Sacramento finish their trip in a deepwater canal built 60 years ago by the Army Corps of Engineers. But the Sacramento is still important, it and its tributaries make up the state's single largest source of fresh surface water. Most precipitation in California falls in the north, while the biggest users, including all the major metropolitan areas and the immense farms of the San Joaquin Valley, are farther south. Devising ways to move water from wet places to dry places has been the labor of generations. During the past century and a half, miners, farmers, politicians, engineers, conservationists, and schemers of all kinds have worked, together and against one another, to create one of the most complex water-shifting systems in the world. In mid-February, I ate lunch at Bethany Reservoir State Recreation Area, a 90-minute drive south of Sacramento, with Jay Lund, who is a co-director of the Center for Watershed Sciences at the University of California, Davis, and Peter Moyle, an emeritus professor at the same university. Lund is in his 60s, and Moyle is almost 80. Spring was well underway. On our drive to Bethany, we'd passed hundreds of acres of blossoming almond trees with neat stacks of beehives spaced at intervals along the rows, for pollination, but the weather was still cool enough for jackets. Before we ate our sandwiches, Lund unrolled a laminated sheet on top of our picnic table. The sheet was three feet wide and so long that one end drooped almost to the ground. Its surface was covered with lines, arrows, symbols, and small blocks of text, a maze-like network that could have passed for the wiring diagram of a nuclear power plant. In fact, Lund explained, it was a schematic of the state's water infrastructure, the inflows and outflows, both natural and man-made. Near the middle of the picnic table, maybe three feet from the edge that represented the Oregon border, was a small label indicating, the delta. It marked what Lund described as the most important element of California's plumbing, an expanse of some 700,000 acres, east of the Bay Area, formed by the confluence of several rivers, the largest of which are the Sacramento and the San Joaquin. For tens of millions of Californians, the Delta, which is also known as the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta, the Bay Delta, and the California Delta, serves as a hydrological hub. The Delta ties everything together, Lund said. All the fresh water that farms and cities in the south import from the north comes from it. Not far from our picnic table, large pumping stations were sending delta water to other parts of the state. In 2014, while I was researching an article and a book about the Colorado River, I interviewed Pat Mulroy, who had recently retired as the general manager of the Southern Nevada Water Authority and had just become a fellow at the University of Nevada's law school. She surprised me by saying that the condition of the delta, which lies several hundred miles outside the Colorado's watershed and which I'd only just heard of, posed as grave a threat to the Colorado's long-term stability as the shockingly low water levels I'd seen in its two largest reservoirs, Lake Powell and Lake Mead.
Seven western states and Mexico divert water from the Colorado, which for decades has been depleted by drought and unsustainable use. As Mulroy and I spoke, California was already being forced to reduce its withdrawals. The delta is crucial because, if it ever failed as a hub, the resulting water crisis in California would increase existing tensions with the Colorado's other parched dependents. One good earthquake would do it, Mulroy said. News stories about the western drought often focus on the Colorado and its reservoirs. The drops in their water levels are easy to see. A little over 20 years ago, Lake Mead was full, but since then, its volume has shrunk by two-thirds. As the water has disappeared, it has left a broad band of light-colored mineral deposits, known as the bathtub ring, on the surrounding canyon walls. The Delta's problems are as dire, but they receive far less public attention. No bathtub ring. Up close, the Delta doesn't look like much, a huge expanse of flat agricultural land, with relatively few signs of human habitation. On Google Earth, it resembles a triangular green jigsaw puzzle. The principal puzzle pieces are five or six dozen irregularly shaped islands, which are separated from one another by 700 miles of sloughs and meandering waterways. The islands are actually what the Dutch called polders, they're landforms that farmers created, beginning in the 19th century, by draining natural wetlands. Most of the islands cover thousands of acres. All are surrounded by dikes, which are known locally as levees, their purpose is to keep water from flooding back in. The cultivated fields inside the levees have gradually subsided, and in some places are now 25 feet below sea level. One consequence is that delta farmers, in addition to siphoning irrigation water from the channels that surround their islands, have to pump water out, a chore familiar to anyone who has used a sump pump to keep a basement dry. The main threat to the delta is saltwater intrusion. If an earthquake caused a major levee failure, the sunken islands would flood, drawing salt water from the Pacific into waterways that are now kept fresh by the pressure of inflows from the Sacramento. Instantly, your fresh water turns to seawater, Mulroy said, and, at that moment, a resource that millions of Californians depend on for drinking and irrigation would be unusable. A month before my interview with Mulroy, I had met with Bradley Udall, who had just joined Colorado State University as a senior water and climate research scientist. During our conversation, he described the Delta to me as the biggest potential water disaster in the United States. That was eight years ago. In the meantime, the drought has continued, making all the problems worse. When the Spanish first sailed into San Francisco Bay, in the late 1700s, the water was so clear that a sailor could look over the side of a ship and see shoals of fish swimming at the bottom. The noise made by salmon at night, as they migrated up nearby streams, was loud enough to keep people awake, and there were so many ducks, geese, pelicans, cranes, and other birds that when they took flight they darkened the sky. Elk, deer, antelope, beavers, and grizzly bears were abundant. The hills surrounding the bay were covered by ancient forests. The Central Valley, California's most productive agricultural region, which runs much of the length of the state, between the Sierra Nevada and the coast ranges, was a lush seasonal wetland. All of that began to change in 1848, when a carpenter who was helping to build a sawmill for a Swiss immigrant named John Sutter noticed something glittering in the mill's tailrace, the beginning of the California gold rush. An emergent mining technique involved shoveling gravel and dirt into an open-ended trough, called a sluice box, then running water over it. Gold is so dense that it settles into riffles in the bottoms of the sluice boxes as the lighter material is washed away. Miners soon realized that they could get rich quicker if they built bigger troughs and increased the volume and speed of the water. 
they diverted mountain streams into wooden flumes and broad pipes, then used canvas hoses with iron nozzles to aim the resulting water jets at entire hillsides. That technique was called hydraulic mining. The water jets were so powerful that, according to contemporary reports, they could kill people standing 200 feet away. Samuel Bowles, an influential New England newspaperman, who was also a friend of Emily Dickinson's and an early reader of her poems, visited the Sierra foothills in the 1860s. Tornado, flood, earthquake and volcano combined could hardly make greater havoc, spread wider ruin and wreck, than are to be seen everywhere in the path of the larger gold-washing operations, he wrote. Hundreds of millions of tons of sediment were pushed downstream, burying some farmland as far away as the delta. As significant as the gold rush, in terms of the physical and cultural transformation of California, was the passage, by Congress, of the Swamp Land Act of 1850. One of its purposes was to facilitate the conversion of Florida's Everglades into arable land, but its provisions also applied to several other states, California among them. As frustrated 49ers gave up on gold, they often turned to agriculture. Speculators acquired large wetland tracts, then built levees, drained marshes, and cut or burned existing vegetation. They grew potatoes, beans, corn, asparagus, cabbages, and other row crops, and riverboats carried their produce to market. They cut down so many trees, partly to provide fuel for the riverboats, that the only real surviving remnant of the region's ancient forests is the name of the city at the eastern end of the Bay Bridge, Oakland. The enterprise was made possible by the immigration of laborers from China and, beginning in the late 19th century, by the use of steam-powered dredges. The modern delta was born then. Two days before our picnic at Bethany Reservoir, Jay Lund and I spent most of the afternoon on waterways near the delta's southwestern tip, in a boat owned by William Fleener, an engineer and emeritus senior researcher at the Center for Watershed Sciences. Fleener's boat is 50 feet long and has a catamaran hull. We set out from the Pittsburgh Marina, near the place where the Sacramento and the San Joaquin flow together. The San Joaquin arises in mountains near Yosemite National Park, runs northward in the Central Valley, and enters the delta from the south. We headed up the mainstem of the Sacramento, and were soon passed by the Atlantis Discovery, a 610-foot-long bulk carrier, which was going the other way. I learned later, from a ship-tracking website, that it had left South Korea a month before, had unloaded cargo in West Sacramento, and was now heading back toward the Golden Gate. We gave it a wide berth. The wind blew hard during our boat ride, as it often does in the Delta. One of California's largest assemblages of wind turbines was just to our west, in the Montezuma Hills, so we spent most of the trip inside the boat's enclosed bridge, snacking on grapes that Lund had brought and on chocolate cookies that Fleener's wife had made. The bridge's windows were high enough that I could look over the levee of Sherman Island and see the difference in elevation between its subsided fields and the level of the river. Fleener said that the truly unnerving view is the one you get when you stand in a subsided field and watch a ship like the Atlantis Discovery going by above your head. Soil in the delta has a high peat content. That's a result of the steady accumulation, throughout thousands of years, of dead wetland vegetation, largely bulrushes called tules, which once flourished throughout the area. As the Pacific rose with the melting of the northern ice sheet, the Thule marshes rose with it, and the underlying layer of submerged dead plant material thickened, creating a stratum of what is really a juvenile fossil fuel. Peat in the delta sometimes catches fire and burns underground. Plowing exposes the peat to air, causing it to oxidize, and as it oxidizes, the land shrinks. Peat also compacts easily, and, when it dries, the delta winds can blow it away. 
Some island fields have been sinking at an average rate of more than an inch and a half a year since the 1800s. Almost all the islands in the delta have flooded at one time or another. A few are still submerged, making the delta jigsaw puzzle appear, from above, to be missing several pieces, Big Break, which was an asparagus farm until 1928, Frank's Tract, which flooded in 1937 and 1938, Mildred Island, which flooded in 1983, most of Liberty Island, which flooded in 1998. There have been many close calls. In 1980, workers on Jones Tract, a 12,000-acre island in the southeastern delta, were enlarging a levee by dredging sediment from the adjacent waterway and piling it on top. The extra weight crushed the peat foundation, and it slowly sank and failed. Greg Gartrell, a hydraulic engineer and an adjunct fellow at the Public Policy Institute of California, told me in an email. Water rushing through the breach threatened the McCallamy Aqueduct, which carries drinking water across the delta to one and a half million residents of San Francisco's East Bay. The torrent would have swept away piers supporting the aqueduct had a passing train on the island railroad not gone off its tracks and partly plugged the gap. A different levee failure on Jones Track drenched the entire island in 2004. Dealing with that break was complicated by the kinds of conflicts that, for decades, have derailed efforts to address climate change and other environmental threats. Because the Jones Tract levy was non-project, meaning that it wasn't part of a federal flood control program and hadn't been built under federal supervision, the Army Corps of Engineers could not help until they had received a formal request. By then, the fields were underwater. The Corps eventually did help to rebuild part of the levee, citing the need to protect State Route 4, which skirts the island, but the repair was done with dredged material that turned out to be contaminated by toxic metals. At the time, California's Department of Water Resources believed the flooding might have been confined to just half of the island, but the Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railroad refused its request to block an opening under a trestle. Drying out Jones Tract took months and cost an estimated $90 million, lawsuits not included. That Jones Tract failure occurred not during an earthquake or a torrential rainstorm but on an otherwise ordinary day in early June, an unsettling thought. Rising seas will cause the delta's waterways to press harder against the levees, and the continued sinking of the fields will make them more vulnerable. A number of levees have been raised or reinforced in recent years, but many haven't, and no single regulatory body is responsible for all of them. A perennial challenge to effective planning in California is that water management is divided among hundreds of jurisdictions, from the federal government down. There are so many agencies, overlapping constituencies, interest groups, and simmering historical antagonisms that implementing comprehensive remedies to the biggest problems has, so far, proved to be impossible, even as those same problems have grown more dire. Farmers in the Delta sometimes worry that farmers in the San Joaquin Valley and homeowners in Los Angeles are out to screw them, and vice versa. Politicians act as though they hope disaster will hold off until the day after they've left office. In 2011, a report published by the Public Policy Institute offered a grim diagnosis, the result is often a game of chicken, where the management of a declining resource becomes deadlocked. Lund, who co-wrote that report, told me, everybody is watching this thing decay, but nobody wants to be the first to offer a compromise, because that weakens their negotiating position. The ocean, meanwhile, continues to rise, and the fields continue to sink. The Delta's main defense against saltwater intrusion has always been the Sacramento River. Throughout the decades, waterways among the islands have been channelized, diverted, and, on occasion, partially blocked, in order to make them more effective both as salt impediments and as freshwater conveyances. 
During our boat ride, we saw a temporary salt barrier, which the state's Department of Water Resources had placed across the West False River, an 800-foot-wide channel. The barrier was a small dam, made of stone, whose purpose was to impede the flow of ocean water into canals that carry water to the south, for irrigation and domestic use. The greatest danger had passed, and the DWR had recently removed the center of the barrier. I also visited the Delta Cross Channel, a mile-long diversion canal on the east side of the Delta, built in 1951. A dam-like structure at its mouth has gates that can be closed during floods, to reduce the likelihood that salty water will reach the pumping stations. Many other defenses have been tried or proposed. In 1929, John Reber, an actor, screenwriter, and theater producer, suggested building two immense dams across San Francisco Bay, roughly where the Bay Bridge and the Richmond-San Rafael Bridge are today, to disconnect the Sacramento almost entirely from the Pacific Ocean. Reber wasn't an engineer, in fact, he hadn't gone to college. But he was an avid amateur hydrologist and an effective promoter. In 1950, Congress appropriated two and a half million dollars to study his and other ideas, and the Army Corps of Engineers built a functioning scale model of the entire region. The model, which was completed in 1957, still exists. I went to see it, at the Bay Model Visitor Center, in Sausalito. It consists of 286 concrete sections weighing 5 tons each, and it covers about 2 acres, inside a warehouse in which Liberty ships were outfitted during the Second World War. It still has working tides, which turn more than a dozen times an hour. Linda Holm, the park ranger who showed me the model, said that tests conducted by the Corps of Engineers in the early 60s proved that the Reber plan, if implemented, would have caused flooding of biblical proportions and doomed the Delta's salmon, among other species, by blocking their migration to and from the ocean.